We're in the midst of our summer member drive. This week, we're featuring Bookship, a collaborative reading app who are offering a special meet and greet opportunity with JL Torres, the author of the Tomas Rivera prize-winning book, Migrations. By becoming a member this week, we'll send you a digital print copy plus all the perks of membership. Join today at lareviewofbooks.org slash join. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're talking with Katie Kitamura about her new novel, Intimacies. We are, and this book takes place at The Hague. It follows an interpreter who recently moved there in order to translate during trials. And it, it follows her during her incredibly difficult job and also in her sort of personal navigation of this place and her circumstances. I was trying to think of some other examples of books that kind of work like this that are so tense. You're just on edge the whole time, but nothing explicitly violent happens to the protagonist. Um, there's this kind of air of violence all around and dread. But in the end, she doesn't I mean, I I guess it's a form of maybe trauma from what she's hearing on the court. But yeah, it was hard for me to think. I know there are so many examples of books like this or films like this where you're just feeling unease, but then nothing, you know, exactly happens on the surface. Can you think of any books like that, Medea? Well, I haven't read Zabald in a while. It's been um, probably over 10 years, but that's the first kind of book that occurs to me where you have that massive sense of scale that I think you also have in this book where it's the kind of violence that happens on a historical massive nation or global level that's kind of there somewhat in the background but also somewhat in the foreground and then also a sense of like personal loss and personal vulnerability and the ways in which violence sort of like seeps into a, a person's life, both in, in sort of the, the large way that it might seep in and, and also like the very personal, physical kind of way. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that's kind of how, what I would compare it to, but yes, I agree. It was, it's like an unsettling read. Yeah, that's a good comparison. And it actually gives me even more respect for this book, how it does that and maintains that throughout just this very, very unsettled feeling. So, yeah. And I think there's also something there that's a little Zabaldian about like, sort of confronting the uncanny that it's like a place that she's been to before but also is unfamiliar to her and there's no real sense of what home is and no real sense of family that there's like overwhelming sense of violence and loss in both of those places so so i think that's what i would compare it to i hope Mm. that's helpful that is yeah well should we get to the conversation let's do it We're so happy to be speaking with the writer Katie Kitamura today. Kitamura is the author of four novels, including Gone to the Forest, The Long Shot, and A Separation, which was a finalist for the Premio Gregor von Rosori, selected as a book of the year by numerous publications in 2017, and is now being adapted for film. Kitamura's other writing appears regularly in places such as the New York Times, Granta, and The Guardian, and she teaches in the creative writing program at New York University. She joins us to discuss her latest novel, Intimacies, which was just published by Riverhead. An existential thriller, 
Intimacies follows an unnamed narrator who has recently moved to The Hague to serve as an interpreter on the International Criminal Court. Worldly, well-traveled, and multilingual, it's a role she excels at but becomes increasingly uneasy with. This sense of unease and discomfort also permeates her close relationships with an art curator named Yana and a love interest named Adrian, who's already married to another woman. But it's perhaps her work in the court where she's interpreting for a former president of a West African nation who's ordered unbelievable atrocities to be carried out where the strongest anxieties reside and deeper questions about power, the confrontation with violence and the possibility of neutrality bubbles to the surface. Thanks so much for being here, Katie. Thank you for having me. So Katie, I just wanted to start because I was wondering how you got interested, how you became interested in the court and the, in particular, the interpreters who work there. And as Kate mentioned, the main character in the novel is an interpreter who works at the court. Yeah, I mean, I find that I have an incredibly long processing time between the first idea for a novel and then the time when I actually sit down to write and then even further before it's actually done. And I realized that the first kind of kernel for this novel was in 2009 when Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia, was in trial in The Hague. And I heard a clip of him speaking in his own defense at his own trial. And there was something that was so morally troubling about hearing him speak. You know, he was a very, very renowned orator. And so he had these incredible, incredibly persuasive language. You could feel his charisma and his magnetism. And you could also feel his egomania and his monstrosity. And there was something that was so troubling about seeing language manipulated in that way that some part of me thought there's something that is kind of going to trouble me about the situation. I kept thinking about it. And then about maybe six or seven years, I sat down to write this book. And the role of the interpreter, I mean, I'm always interested in characters who who speak the words of other people, who are kind of vessels for other people's language. In my last book, the central character is a translator. And so a lot of her work is finding a way of varying language from one language into another language. And it's really the same thing in this book. And I think I've been thinking about it now that I've actually done two books in this register. I've been trying to figure out why that is. And I think part of it is that it's not dissimilar to the role of the novelist, which is that you kind of go in and you try to tap into the voices and the language of other people for a time you are occupying that. And then you step out. And then for me, the question is always, when language travels through you, what kind of residue does that leave? And does that residue change you as a person? It's interesting because in the book, she her work is translation, but then also just socially with the characters around her, she seems to kind of recede around her friends. And there's a number of dinner. No one asks her very much about her work. She doesn't have a chance to really unpack its effects on her with people close to her. So... Was that a choice kind of like as a residual of her job, it starts to bleed into her work? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm I'm so preoccupied with passivity, which is almost the opposite of what as a fiction writer you're meant to look for in a character. And I teach on a creative writing program and all the time the language is where's the agency or, you know, where's the motivation, which I completely can understand that as a kind of mechanism for thinking about fiction. But I find that I'm actually quite interested in characters who are almost the exact opposite. So they're characters who things happen to them on some level and they are essentially passive creatures. But then I think, I suppose the kind of ethical question that is something that came up in this novel is what is the cost of that passivity and what does that actually mean 
on a moral level. So, you know, my character really thinks of herself as a neutral observer, at least at the start of the novel. She thinks of herself as a instrument of the court in some way. But I think over the course of the novel, she comes to understand that that neutrality is much more weighted than she thought it was. And that to be an instrument of the court is still to be part of an institution. And that is also a very kind of loaded position for her to be in. So I think even the appearance of passivity, even this, you know, I always write characters who are in some way looking in on the action from the sidelines on some level. But even that there is actually a kind of responsibility and there is an agency in that. And so that is something, you know, to be passive is, is a big choice. So that is definitely something that I was thinking about in this novel. But it is, she is, I think in some ways, the narrator is a kind of cipher for a writer type figure in that she is an observer of other people's action. I'm curious about how you achieve this sense of disease throughout the novel because it's so tense. <laughs> I mean, obviously there are some you know awful crimes depicted especially in regards to the court, but just throughout the whole novel, I was kind of waiting for some shoe to drop and I felt like something very disturbing was happening. And do you think that that passivity and that kind of emptiness and that vessel-like quality has an eeriness and a real disturbing quality? I think it definitely does. I think, I mean, I guess I have two thoughts. One is that the kind of mode of operation for the first person voice for me is to constantly be undermining any assumption, what I try to do. So it's kind of like you think A might be true, but then the voice will hopefully circle around and say that it could be B or it could be C or it could be D. And there's a kind of cascade of hypotheses that the narrator is always churning out and almost living inside of, I think. So there's a lot of uncertainty just in the structure of the voice. And she's always, if there's assumption A, I think she will have a tendency to kind of unpack that and try to undo that. And then I think that actually creates a lot of tension and unease because you don't feel like you're on stable ground. And then I think the other thing I would say, which is something that I suppose I thought about a lot more as I've been talking about the book, but which is that I was such an avid mystery reader as a child. I, that was the kind of thing that I was addicted to reading. That was the thing I was always in a corner reading. Agatha Christie novels or Patricia Highsmith or whatever, that was my, my thing. And so I think a lot of my basic understanding of narrative is in some way that has imprinted on my brain, whether I really know it or not. But I think the moments of unease in a mystery novel is not actually the moment at the end when everything is tied up. That's a moment of release. And I think what I try to do in my books is actually just to suspend that feeling of unease as your unknowing grows. And then it isn't really resolved in the end. It just kind of carries on through to the conclusion of the book. I'm curious about the connection you were talking about passive characters, and it seems to me that there's some correlation in this book between passivity and protection, that there's a part of passivity that is a privilege, right? That you don't have to act because nothing is, that you're protected in some way, right? The interpreters are protected by glass in the court. We should say there's another storyline in the book where, I want to choose my words carefully because I don't want to say too much in terms of the plot, but just to keep that sort of, make sure who, the readers who pick it up do have that sense of unease throughout, but that there's an attack that is perpetrated on an elderly bookseller. And there are times when the main character thinks, you know, that's not the kind of person who would usually be exposed to that kind of violence. That there's people who are just simply protected from the kind of violence that is perpetrated in the world. 
And I wonder what you think the relationship is between protection, people who are protected, whether that is literally protected by a shield, a glass or whatever, or protected by wealthy government or protected by their own wealth and by gates and the ability to be passive. I think there's a very strong connection. And I think, I mean, that idea of who has the privilege of assuming their physical safety was definitely something that I was interested in. In the novel, there's a kind of lengthy (laughs) description of the security system. The character ends up staying in an apartment that is not hers. And there's a kind of lengthy description of the security system that this wealthy person has in place. And you know, my editors were a little bit like, this just goes on and on and on. <laughs> but and, and I did pare it back because it was, I think it was excessive and the point could be, have been made in a more succinct fashion. But I was interested in, in the kind of mechanisms that are both practical, but also psychological, because that's a great gift of wealth is the psychological belief in your safety and the way that allows you to occupy the street and occupy the world. And that's very much something that the novel is thinking about and that the central character, I think, ultimately has to come to think about. And so I think the passivity that to some extent comes quite naturally to her at the start of the novel, I hope eventually becomes problematized in some way. And she mm-hmm. realized that there is a cost that's not just personal. It's not just a question of what does it mean to be a passive person in your personal relationships or in your work, but also what is the kind of ethical cost of deciding not to take an action and to what extent is that an expression of of your privilege that you possibly should not always accept i know that for the research of the book you actually visited at the hague and yes. um i was curious how this confrontation with violence seems like kind of one of the central themes of the book and how difficult the role of interpreter is. And also, you know, the title Intimacies is such a wonderful kind of compass because you always come back to it and think these people become so deeply intimate, not only with criminals or people who've committed these terrible, terrible crimes, but their words come out of their own mouths. I mean, it's a real, seems like a very delicate situation. And I wonder what kind of feelings the real interpreters you had conversations with told you about how the work affects them? I felt so lucky. They were very open with me on some level and they were very open about the fact that it is psychologically extremely taxing and that there is a kind of cost to doing that work. And the court in the book is not named as the International Criminal Court, but is closely based on it. And the interpreters at the ICC told me that they do have regular access to psychiatric help should they require it because of the taxing nature of the specific work they're doing. And they also did say to me that on some occasions, they simply said, I can't do it. I can't do this. You know, if it was a victim's testimony, they would say, I just don't feel I'm able to do it. And I think the institution is very aware of the kind of pressures and the difficulty and the kind of residual, you know, it's hours. It's almost a, it's physical work in some ways. You're sitting in a booth for many, many hours doing this work. And I think the kind of way that that grows over time and becomes can become very, very difficult is something that the institution is definitely aware of. But one thing that was very interesting to me about the interpreters is that they were they were charismatic people. They had what felt to me very kind of big personalities. And one of the things that they all told me was that part of their work is not simply providing a literal 
word translation of what is being said. It is interpretive work. So, for example, if something is said that is ironic, you can't just ferry that into whatever language in a straightforward way. You need to be able to convey that this is an ironic statement, particularly, I think, in cases of the magnitude that are looked at in a war crimes tribunal, a small slip is very, very significant. So they are literally performing the language, I think, on some level. And, you know, interpretation as a word is, you know, you interpret a dance performance, for example. You interpret a piece of music, you interpret a role. So I think their kind of physical exhaustion of that kind of work, it is very far, I think, from a mechanical job that they're doing. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Katie Kitamura about her new book, Intimacies. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Claire Fuller on the line with us today. Her new novel is called Unsettled Ground, and Claire is here to give us a book recommendation. Claire, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend Fugitive Pieces by Anne Michaels. Okay, can you tell me more about that book? I've not heard of it. I picked it up because it won the Orange Prize in 1996, which then became the Baileys, which then became the Women's Prize for Fiction. And uh, in 96, my oldest child was 18 months and my youngest was newborn. So I think that's why this book completely <laughs> passed me by, because I do try to read the winners of, of that prize in particular. Um, what, what excuse do I have? <laughs> no excuse. Well, so sorry, go on. <laughs> You must have been a baby in 1996. I was 10, yeah. Um. <laughs> That's quite a good excuse. Thank you. <laughs> so Anne Michaels is, is a Canadian writer and this book, there's two parts to it. And the first is about a man called Jacob who's writing his memoir and you're reading his memoir, which gets cut short because he dies in a car crash and you, you do learn that right at the beginning, I think even in the prologue. And he was in Poland as a seven-year-old in the Second World War. His parents are taken away. He's Jewish. He is rescued by a Greek man and taken to a Greek island where he hides him and looks after him. And Jacob grows up there. And then eventually they move to Canada and Jacob has a wife. But there's lots of things about his family that he can't find anymore. Lots of trauma, I guess, really, that he's coping with, living through, dealing with. And then the second half of the book is um, narrated by a man called Ben, who discovers Jacob's memoir. And Ben has um, parents who survived the Holocaust, but also kind of inherits trauma. But it's incredibly poetic, this book. Anne Michaels is a poet, and you can just read that in every line. I listened to it with her reading it as an audiobook, and immediately I went out to buy it because I just want to be able to flick back and forwards and underline everything, really. So it's an absolutely wonderful book. Very, very moving. That's a great recommendation. Thank you, Claire. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yeah, the title is Fugitive Pieces and the author is Anne Michaels. Thanks so much. We've been talking to Claire Fuller. Her new novel is called Unsettled Ground.
You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Katie Kitamura, author of Intimacies. And just to follow up on that, um, also, you know, we were talking about privilege before and the yeah. privilege to not have to worry about your safety, basically yes. not to confront violence on a day-to-day level. Yeah. I wonder about their work and the work of people who really are confronting violence and just the way um, it kind of filters out into nations that aren't dealing with, you know, really intense war um, where we think of maybe, right, you heard Charles Taylor on the radio, but you didn't see him. You didn't see the kinds of crimes that were committed in Liberia outside your own door. Just this way in which that we're all guarded maybe, or some of us are guarded from violence, even the knowledge of violence more than others. And um, if that was something that you thought about in the book, just if we should all be trying to more deeply confront violence um, on a day-to-day level, even if our current circumstances don't mean that we're living through it? I mean, that's such an interesting question. I was very careful in this novel about how I represented the atrocities that are discussed in the core. And I think the only form in which they really come up is is very embedded in the act of interpretation. And I think it's one scene in particular when the narrator is interpreting for a victim who is, is providing her testimony to the court. I suppose one thing I would say that I was very struck by as I did my research is the fact that historically the ICC has tried many, many more African leaders than anywhere else in the world. And that is not simply because there are only more crimes happening in Africa. That's because, you know, the United States, for example, did not sign the Rome Statute, which means that they cannot be prosecuted. They are outside the jurisdiction of the ICC, so they cannot be prosecuted for war crimes that they have committed. You know, the ICC did open up an investigation into the United Kingdom for war crimes committed in Afghanistan, but on the whole, it has been very, very limited. And one thing that I admire the work very much that is done by the ICC, but one thing that is interesting to me is that simply, it is an institution, right? And it is subject, it has to function like an institution. And it's an institution that just pragmatically speaking, has to function in dialogue with other institutions on the ground. That is just the reality of how international criminal justice works. And I think one unintended side effect is precisely this narrative that makes it seem as if war crimes are something that are happening over there by these other people, when in fact, we all know that everything, that that we are very, very much implicated, certainly as, as Americans, we are very, very much implicated in many kinds of war crimes around the world. And certainly for the central character who is Japanese-American, for me, one of the most important scenes is when she's confronted with the fact that the two nations that she kind of would claim a natural identification with, these are, are countries that have imperialist, violent, aggressive histories. Um, but because of the way an institution functions and, you know, um, that is not the narrative, that is not kind of assumption or that is, that is not the received narrative about this. 
it's interesting to watch or to read about the larger sort of historical actors in the book, like the the president who's being charged in court, is to see the ways in which they can weaponize moral relativism, yeah. right? And the, and we see we see that in the news all the time as well, obviously. So I was wondering what you think about the power of something like that, or the power of having, or I think it's like it's potentially a, a, a form of a form of wielding power over somebody else to invoke that kind of moral relativism and and say, well, you're not so you're not so good either, right? And of course that's true. Of course that's accurate. But it makes this the idea of justice and what justice is that much more messy. So I wonder how you were approaching this idea of what justice could be or is when you were thinking about the book and about about the kinds of uh, dilemmas and and legal questions that you were going through. I mean, I I don't think I have a answer <laughs> what I think uh justice can be, but I think it's an ideal and I think mm. it has to be enacted in some way. Um and I think Understanding that it's an ideal that needs to be enacted in the world doesn't preclude us from examining the institutions that are at work enforcing or meeting out that justice, right? So I think, you know, the scene when the former president says this thing to the narrator is, is not intended for the reader to say, my gosh, he's right and therefore he should be acquitted. You know, that is not the intention of that scene by any means, but I think it's it's just for the position that the narrator is in in that moment. It's just a moment when for her personally, she can no longer assume her own neutrality, I think, for where she has been taken to at that point in the narration. And obviously there's somebody else in the room who says to her, why didn't you say something? Why did you allow him to speak to you like that? And and in that moment for her, she no longer has a firm, she no longer has a, a firm sense of, of of her own objectivity. She, she can't take that for granted anymore. And that is by no means meant to uh, imply moral relativism. I do think that we can acknowledge the incredible seriousness of the work that these tribunals are doing, the centrality of it, um, the incredible seriousness of, of the crimes that are being committed and how it is so important to bring it to the world's attention and, and also see um, that these institutions, and certainly for some people, they do they do think that these institutions are a kind of post-colonial form of imperialism. Um, you know, whether or not you agree with that, I think it's 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 an idea that is worth it's worth considering why that narrative might be persuasive to some people, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's also interesting that she responds to the president when he when he says this to her. In, in that way, because she she is also sort of a rootless person, right? She doesn't really have a home that she identifies with. Her mother's in Singapore at the moment, but she doesn't, that's not home for her. She, her father and her mother, and she lived in New York, but her father and her father passed away there, but that doesn't quite feel like home either. And so there's also a way in which she is she is kind of a free agent in, in the world in a, and may not in some ways, free to not have to identify with mm-hmm. some of the mm-hmm. some of the things that she's accused of by by the president, or something that her um, her people, I think, is what he um, what he calls it. I think for me, I, you know, I, even though you know, just because my 
parents are in Japan and I spend a lot of time somewhere else. It, it still, I don't feel like I'm not implicated in kind of mm-hmm. American in, in in this in this country. I think, unfortunately, you know, it's it's not quite so easy. I I think I think it's a kind of complicated that that act of disavowal, which you know, who who among us have have, have not felt that. Way I assume, especially over the last kind of four or five years, but that is a complicated thing. That gesture for it to really carry me away, I think, is. I guess I find myself wondering what that looks like. Yeah, there did seem to be a tension throughout the book around kind of this idea of internationalness, or you know, yeah. some transcending nations, yeah. um, because yeah. you know, because of that scene and the the court, and also it's set right before you know, pointedly right before Brexit is about to take place, yes. and even you know, the I, I I felt like you you kind of send up. The Hague really humorously at times with certain elements of how the city is, um, but the city also it can feel kind of at times like nowhere. It could be anywhere, and then going back between her very astute uh, observations about the Dutch people, and you know, kind of she gets a, a book on the history of the city at, at one point. So it seems like it it kind of moves between this idea of she's anywhere, she's nowhere, but then at times she feels she's somewhere, and then you reference your own experience kind of being between all these places. So I wonder how, how you know, your thoughts on internationalness um, played into the writing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think it's something just because it's what I grew up with um, that has felt very natural to me. And it's been interesting, you know, in just after Brexit, I think, do you remember what Theresa May had a word? Did she, I think she called them rootless cosmopolitans or, or something. There's, she had a kind of dismissive phrase where she said, those people, they're from nowhere. I, I think it, she had a kind of post-Brexit phrase where if you're from everywhere, you're from, from nowhere. <laughs> is, is that what it was? There was a phrase like that, which, which really um, struck with me because I, I think it's something that I, I've always felt very comfortable in and that has always felt to me, even as a child, something that was positive to know many parts of the world. And I have children and and my husband is English and his father is Indian. And, you know, I'm American, but my family is from Japan. And and I even, even earlier on, we felt the kind of excitement of being able to say there are a lot of different places where you have family. Um, And then it certainly seems in in the kind of age of post-Brexit, that is actually something that is almost considered a, a vulnerability um, or is, is, there's a certain segment that are trying to turn that into a vulnerability. Um, but it's something that I, that is so ingrained in my way of thinking about being in the world that it's, it's hard for me to let go of. Um, even as I can see, I can see in the changing landscape, how that is, it is a kind of political vulnerability for sure. But for me, it still feels like a, a kind of, it has an allure to me. We haven't really talked so much about the sexual relationships in the book and the romantic relation, not just sexual, the romantic relationships in the book. <laughs> and um, and so one of the ways in which I, I think it's it's a really interesting book to read is that it goes from the sort of large scale power dynamics of something like The Hague, where it's truly global um, powers, right, that are meeting in this room, to the sort of power dynamics between often men and women, but also sort of um, men and women who are involved in some kind of romantic or erotic relationship. It was interesting to see those two things paired together. And I was wondering how you thought of those two things 
as a sort of pair. I think there's there's very clear parallels that that you that you build throughout the book, but if there's one ways in, or some certain ways in which you think they fit together sort of naturally or that those large scale power dynamics play out in our personal lives all the time. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, people who are in power are, are still just people and they're subject mm-hmm. to the same petty manipulations, like the moment, you know, that we were talking about earlier with the former president. That's like a real, that's actually a kind of a moment of where his pettiness is extremely transparent. I think it's very, it all kind of comes up to the surface. But I think primarily I was interested in trying to capture the, the gap between what we experience on a day-to-day level, which is small scale and, and, and sometimes feels quite irrelevant, and then these very large historical narratives that are taking place around the central character. And so one of the things I did think is, is that the kind of banality of, of waiting for a text message from your lover, which is, which is so... <laughs> It, which is such a such a kind of pathetic form of, of waiting, actually is something that the narrator, she, she's simultaneously, um, you know, observing this very significant trial and then at the same time waiting for this person to text her. And I think the absurdity of, of the gap in significance of those two things and the fact that your brain somehow can't manage the scale, I think, almost. I'm waving my fingers around on the screen um, <laughs> to indicate scale. But, but you, it's, I, I find my, for myself, it's very hard for my brain to comprehend the scale of, of what is happening around me, what I, what I see on the news, climate change with my very personal and I know, I absolutely know insignificant concerns. And I cannot manage that in the way that I would like to be able to manage it. So I think one one aspect of the book is is absolutely almost, even though I think there are a lot of thematic similarities, and obviously one of them is, you know, when I finished writing the book, I realized that there's there's so much sexual harassment in it, which is about power, obviously, mm-hmm. rather than desire. It is about, and in the case of this novel, though obviously it, it takes many forms, but in the case of the particularities of this novel, it's men imposing themselves on women in a variety of forms, which I think is not unrelated to the fact that the people who are in power within this institution and including the person who is on trial, they're all male. Um, I think there are thematic reasons for it, but I think actually what was, what I hope to capture was the the gap, if that makes sense, where the fact that there isn't actually a tidy, uh, there isn't a smart reason why she should be worrying about her text message when she's interpreting about, you know, genocide, when she's interpreting a trial that is about genocide. And that that's something that she actually has a lot of difficulty with. And that certainly, I personally have had a lot of difficulty with. Yeah, I mean, that's subjectivity, right? That's, yes, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> that's I mean, all, that's subjectivity, exactly. That's, all of us have difficulty with that. And, and, yeah. and that's why, yeah, there's no, maybe there's no such thing as, turning that off and just being yes. objective because yes. everyone seems subject to that. Yes. Um, unfortunately, but maybe fortunately, <laughs> because it does seem, I, I do not to spoil anything with the book, but it does seem that the book in some ways, it resolves ambiguously, but it also resolves with this resounding decision on the narrator's part to embrace her personal history, to embrace her desire. Um, and that that's kind of what sets her free. And, and that's the note you end on is that she taps into what she wants and where she's been and who she's been and that mm-hmm. it, it helps her in some way. 
that was such a lovely interpretation. <laughs> and so thank you. I kind of joke that it's like a middle-aged romance, but I think it, it's one of the things that I really felt was that it was two characters who are, are they are not young characters, either of them. They, they are in the, in the middle of their lives. And I think the idea that there is a kind of history and that everybody has a history and that you, you come from some place and that you will have an imperfect, you might have an imperfect grasp on the history of your partner, but nonetheless, even with whatever imperfection or whatever instability there might be in the foundation of your relationship, it can still be enough to move forward. And so I think on some level, I feel like it ends with a kind of endorsement of compromise, <laughs> which is which is not, you know, I, I understand that a compromised middle-aged romance is not exactly a, a way to sell the book. But I mean, it, to some extent, that was what I, what I, I, I felt was that it was, it was, there's a kind of realism to it that is part of the, the older nature of these characters. To compromise in middle age. Thank you. <laughs> to compromise um, in middle age. Yeah. Thank you so much, Katie, for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Katie Kitamura. Her newest novel is called Intimacies. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Mm-hmm.